0: Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, listeners, it's Jenny. In light of the case currently making its way through the Supreme Court, threatening Roe v. Wade, we're bringing back the second season of Ordinary Equality. The conversation around reproductive rights has been one of the most contentious political debates in America. From Wonder Media Network, Ordinary Equality unpacks the history of this debate. From the views of Colonial America, to underground abortion networks, to the seminal Supreme Court case Roe v. Wade, and all the way to the present day. Tune in right here on this feed for a new episode every Tuesday and Thursday.
1: This is something central to a woman's life, to her dignity. It's a decision that she must make for herself.
2: From Kansas, Kentucky, and North Carolina, dedicated women marched. Abortion is fast becoming the new political fault line. Alabama's governor has signed the nation's strictest abortion ban into law. The Human Life Protection Act outlaws the procedure except when the mother's life is at risk. This bill is not about pro life or the right to life.
3: This bill is about control.
2: We will not go
4: back. And we, the people of the United States of America, documented or undocumented, are having abortions, legal or not. This court will never stop us.
3: Hey, everyone. Welcome to the final episode of Ordinary Equality Season 2. I'm Kate Kelly human rights attorney and feminist activist. And I'm Jamia Wilson, a writer,
4: editor, and feminist activist. We've covered so much ground this season, from the history of abortion worldwide, to reproductive injustice against people of color, to the role of religion in abortion, the secret abortion underground of the 1970s, and what Roe v. Wade left undone. Today, we want to look toward the future of the abortion
3: conversation, As we learned in previous episodes, the right worked for years to systematically change the way abortion is talked about in this country. They manufactured the divisive debate we see today. Because of that, we need to be equally systematic in our effort to dismantle the anti-choice movement. We can't rely on the fact that
4: we're morally right to win this. We need a game plan to reclaim this debate on our own terms. So that's what we're talking about today, exactly how we can unify and change our messaging to give ourselves the best chance of success. First, the reproductive rights movement needs to maintain a consistent message of inclusivity. We'll cover what that means and how the language many of us currently use is actually damaging.
3: We'll confront the prejudice on our own side. Then, we need to commit to presenting the anti-abortion crowd with a disciplined message. That means leaving behind certain rhetoric that fails to push the conversation forward. So strap in, because we've got a lot to discuss. Before we talk about how to communicate with the antis, it's important to acknowledge how our messaging has faltered so far. The pro-choice movement is so used to reacting defensively to the religious rights accusations that we've absorbed harmful ideas too. Let's look at a few examples of what that really means. Too many people in our movement still use
4: language that suggests abortion is shameful. That having sex for pleasure and getting pregnant is a mistake. This language may sometimes seem subtle but it reveals a deeply problematic seed in our movement. Here's Renee Bracy Sherman, the founder and executive director of We Testify, an organization dedicated to the leadership and representation of people who have abortions. The
0: way in which we talk about pregnancy in general, the anti-abortion movement very much is like, well, you know, you had sex, so you better have this kid and you're punished for it you know, the reproductive rights movement is kind of like, well, you shouldn't be punished, you know, your whole life for a mistake. And it's, it needs to be beyond that. It needs to be that, like, yeah, people have sex. People have multiple partners. People are sometimes in toxic relationships. Accidents happen. Birth control is not 100%. That's okay. And abortion can be there as part of that. And I think that, The other piece about not wanting to talk about sexuality and pleasure is because we are, as a nation, uncomfortable with this idea that young people are having sex. A couple of years ago, Speaker Nancy Pelosi made comments saying, you know, we're not really supporting abortion on demand, which she was leaning into this right wing talking point. But if we really break it down, what does on demand mean? On demand means somebody gets an abortion when they need one. I support that. On demand is receiving the service, the care, the health care that you need. I believe all health care should be on demand. When someone is saying they need it, they should get it. And so I, I think we don't need to buy into this right wing talking point or this framing of what on-demand means and that it's like this frivolous thing and that people shouldn't be having them all the time, that it needs to be rare. No, there will be as many abortions as there need to be, and people should be able to have them whenever they need
4: them. And I will support them to do that. When politicians say they aren't for abortion on demand, what they're really doing is reacting defensively to attacks from the religious right. Republicans accuse the left of wanting indiscriminate abortions. Then rather than breaking down what that means and sticking with an inclusive message, many on our side essentially respond with, no, we don't. Sometimes even mentioning abortion can be seen as political suicide. And that is a signal to people who
0: have abortions that the procedure that you had was shameful and you probably should not talk about it. It is not a word that we should be saying in polite society, right? That is a actually a really large signal for us. And it feels very frustrating because. All of us who've shared our abortion stories have put ourselves out there so much. And we put ourselves out there to really organize and ensure that we did not have an anti-abortion president going into 2021. And yet the least that this president could do is show up for us by talking about our need to have abortion care with some sort of like, with values, right? say from the podium how important it is that you believe access to abortion is part of human rights and it is health care, unequivocally. This is not an uncommon thing. He's not the only one who does this. A lot of us are afraid of using the word abortion. People will use a lot of euphemisms, women's reproductive health decisions and women's health care and all of these things. Just say the word abortion. It's gender inclusive. It says what you're talking about. And it's just one word. And it also signals that you unequivocally support it. And with that, I think what's important with another change is that we actually really need to start challenging our supposedly pro-choice legislators. You say that you're pro-choice, but won't talk about abortion, won't even say the word, right? Show it. If you actually believe that your constituents deserve abortion access, show us. Show us by standing up and loving us in public. Show us that you love someone who's had an abortion. It's just that simple. And I also think we need to say that it's not just a thing to say, like, you know, the way in which we say, oh, I'm, you know, I'm not racist, prove it. Oh, I'm pro-choice, prove it. I wanna see you put your name on repealing the Hyde Amendment. I wanna see your local city council Work to make sure there is money to ensure people in your city can afford abortions.
3: Just think about the language many people on the left use to talk about abortion. Phrases like safe, legal, and rare, or don't punish someone for one mistake. That sends a signal to folks who have had abortions. It says, you should feel bad. Abortion is still seen by too many people in our movement, even those on our side, as politically and socially toxic. Whether or not we realize it, the language we use and our reluctance to bring it up reinforce that it's true and let the other side weaponize it. Jamia and I have both seen this fear in action in many spaces, including in our Equal Rights Amendment advocacy work.
4: This year, the House voted to pass a resolution to remove the deadline for the ERA again. But that didn't come without fierce opposition from House Republicans.
5: But at the end of the day, the question really becomes is, is, why are we doing this? As we have heard earlier, NARAL, Pro-Choice America, with ratification of the ERA, it reinforced the constitutional right to abortion by clarifying sexes or other equal rights, which would require judges to strike down anti-abortion laws. This is what this is actually about. It's interesting we're talking about the rights of of women today, which again, this bill doesn't have anything to do with, but we're not concerned if the young women in the womb are even able to have a birthday. So, what would happen from these folks who are supporting your resolution today? Why do they want it? Because it gives a claim to start to finish unfettered abortion.
4: But before we let those who oppose equality distract us, here's the facts. If the ERA is ratified, it may actually help defend our constitutional right to access all comprehensive health care. That includes abortion care, gender-confirming surgeries, as well as fighting reproductive coercion like forced sterilization. That's one of the reasons we want it. Conservatives have responded to progressive Supreme Court decisions like Roe v. Wade by working for decades to assure their vision of the Constitution is implemented. They've got a long game. We must fight back in equal measure by offering our vision of what the Constitution means. Prohibiting gender discrimination in the Constitution is our opportunity to do just that. We should fight for a Constitution that protects our most basic bodily
3: autonomy. Important issues that are particularly unpopular with the opposition are often deliberately left out of key rights discussions in an attempt to make them more palatable to the middle. Think about how lesbians, deemed the lavender menace, were intentionally excluded from the women's rights movement in the 1970s. Moves like that are all about image and preemptively trying to protect an advocacy movement from accusation from the antis. They're also about prejudices that we're harboring on our own side. And we're still doing this. Too many of us are afraid of making the connection between the ERA and abortion because we fear it will give the opposition ammo to defeat us. And I get that, because I want to win too. But we need to leave that fear behind in favor of unified honesty if we want to win in a way that gets us what we actually want, equality.
4: Reluctance to mention abortion in the political sphere isn't the only language problem our movement has. Kate and I have also seen some of our fellow reproductive rights advocates push back against the use of gender-inclusive language and avoid including trans voices in the conversation. Um, menstruators, chest feeders, pregnant people and I just thought the essence of this debate and what we're
0: losing is is literally the word woman.
4: Many women like myself have been pushed out of spaces that that we built, spaces that are intended to include us, simply because we acknowledge biological reality.
2: I think misogyny plays a really big part in all of this, that a man who goes to these lengths will be a better woman than someone who was just born a woman."
4: This refusal to acknowledge and include trans folks in our movement has actual real-life implications. Trans individuals have distinct healthcare needs, so a lack of visibility can be detrimental to their well-being. Here's Heidi Moseson, an epidemiologist at IBIS Reproductive Health. She helped conduct a national quantitative survey about pregnancy in the trans and non-binary community.
5: I think what's felt really powerful about this study and having it published in the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology, which is the top OBGYN journal in the country, is to just make very clear to all OBGYNs trans and non binary people have abortions in this country. They are showing up in your clinics, they are showing up as your patients, have an awareness of that there are some needs and experiences that may differ from your more frequent cisgender women patients. So some considerations around preference for method type. You know, we learned that a lot of our trans and non-binary participants had a strong preference for medication abortion based on it being less invasive, essentially, and not requiring any internal exam or internal uh, instrumentation, etc., which we didn't have that information before. What we present in some of our research, too, is there's high desire for pregnancy amongst trans and non-binary folks. So someone can be a man and want to carry a pregnancy. So I think there's a lot of assumptions based on who someone is in partnership with, who someone is having sex with, what assumptions or genders that providers might assume for any of that. You, you basically can't make assumptions. People want to build their families. And there are so many amazing ways that people can build their families.
3: We sat down with a non-binary reproductive justice advocate who was kind enough to share how lack of visibility and inclusive language has impacted their experience in their pursuit of work and healthcare.
1: So my name's Jack, my pronouns are they, them, theirs. Whenever people ask me uh, to kind of tell them what my capacity is in this movement, I always just tell them what I do for a living because I find that to be very interesting. I run a sex shop, so that's fun. Um, And I feel like it's somewhat relevant. I've been work I worked in public health for a while in my early 20s. Um and I've been talking about my abortion publicly for about 10 years now.
4: Jack said their abortion at Planned Parenthood was a largely positive
1: experience.
4: But the clinic still clearly didn't have the gender identity literacy they should have had.
1: Like I was too scared to really tell anybody at the clinic while I was having the abortion, "Hey, these are actually my pronouns." It really I was like, I want to be safe and not be pregnant. I wasn't going to sit and have an education session on what pronouns were at that moment. Um, That would be too much emotional labor. And I was not in a good place. Like, I was not happy about the situation, obviously. So (laughs) it's not the first thing I wanted to have to explain. At the time, because I had my abortion in 2011... There was no pronoun option or preferred name option on the intake forms. They were incredibly cis-sexist. But
3: again, it wasn't my first concern. This lack of knowledge about gender identity and repeated misgendering became a common theme running through much of Jack's advocacy work.
1: I remember once I did a presentation. I was being given feedback and someone misgendered me. And I corrected them and they told me, Jack, could you could you not correct me when I misgender you? Because it takes me out of my thought process. And the amount of patience I had to practice in that moment was just incalculable. Um, And I had to say, well, I had to wait and kind of just go, well, you know, I appreciate that that you're communicating that with me, but I want you to think about how difficult it is for me to hear what you're saying when you're misgendering me and how that takes me out of being able to to hear you and communicate with you because it is an act of violence.
3: Even if advocates use the right gender pronouns, acknowledgement of trans people's existence is too often performative. When I've worked with
1: other organizations, a lot of the time it feels like they just want a trauma story. They want me to talk about how sad and hard it was to be a poor college student who couldn't afford their abortion. Being gender non-conforming, being transgender, being non-binary, That's like a fun tidbit here and there in May for, you know, pride bump that they love to throw in. But it's not. They use people like me for our stories, for credibility, but they don't actually give a rat's ass what happens to us. They often don't pay you for the emotional labor or physical labor, depending on what you're doing. They are unorganized. They don't have any respect for you. You're just another name and another story to go like, oh, yes, because we need these donors. So we need you to talk about how sad and hard it was for you. And it doesn't feel like I'm being treated like a human being.
4: This ignorance translates to a material lack of respect and opportunity in healthcare. Here's Dr. Moseson again.
5: Some providers who may want to provide affirming care but haven't had training or exposure to information on how to do so, Or on an uglier side, a lot of outright discrimination and refusal to provide care for someone who shows up as a man or a non-binary person in an abortion clinic. Um, And on a seemingly less harmful scale, but perhaps no less, um, perhaps actually no less harmful, small things such as it's really hard to walk into a space as a man that says, Women's health clinic, you walk into a space, the walls are pink. There's only pictures of cis women on the walls. You know, it, it feels hard to show up in that space and be misgendered by the receptionist or only have a women's restroom in the space. Um, things that sound small but can be quite intimidating to walk into. Um, we have another study actually out on people, trans and non-binary folks, who opted not to go to the healthcare system often for these reasons and chose to self manage an abortion at home, either with herbs or in some settings with harmful methods such as physical trauma. There's a lot to be said for self managed abortion. It can be very safe and effective if people use mifepristone and or misoprostol on its own. But when people don't have access to that, uh, those medications, it can be less safe. Mm
4: We can't undermine the humanity of trans people for fear of opening ourselves up to further criticism from transphobes, TERFs, and the religious right. We must acknowledge the full base of people we're intending to help and defend. It hurts me when I see purported reproductive rights activists pushing back against gender-neutral terms like pregnant people, with concerns that they erase womanhood. My own identity isn't impacted by gender-neutral language. In my assessment, you can't be a real reproductive justice advocate without being trans-inclusive, just like you can't be a feminist and be racist. Jack had a response to people who refuse to use gender-neutral language regarding pregnancy.
1: That's because they associate womanhood with that experience. There are women, cis and trans, who don't have uteruses, who can't give birth, who can give birth. And I find that to be very closed-minded. I completely understand why, especially older generations of Black women, I'm Caribbean, and I get that that narrative is like we weren't given the opportunity to be people. We weren't considered w- women at all. We were, you know, property and all that jazz. I, I completely, completely understand that. But I also would love to acknowledge the fact that people of different gendered experiences and fluidity have existed for thousands of years this is not new, whether we were recognized, you know, it's like that, that conversation about we weren't allowed to be people. Like it's, it's an, it's a lack of acknowledgement of, of our existence and how ironic that is, because that's the argument that's being made. It's like, it's not acknowledging our existence. What about ours? We're experiencing the same things. We are also people of color. We are also disabled people. We are also women. We are also not women. You know, the queerness is there, whether it's a a queerness of gender or queerness of orientation, sexual orientation or romantic orientation, it's there and it needs to be acknowledged.
3: If the person you're talking about is a cis woman, you can call her a pregnant woman. No one is trying to erase individuals' identities. But the safety of trans folks is more important than our discomfort about what the opposition might say. Acknowledging trans folks and integrating their experiences into our discussions about abortion are only the first steps. All reproductive healthcare providers need to put gender and pronoun preference in their intake forms. We need to integrate gender-confirming care into our reproductive justice advocacy work. And we need to confront trans antagonism within our own base to become a truly impactful progressive movement. One thing I think it's important to acknowledge is that we cannot throw anyone under the bus (laughs) in order to get rights for us and people like us. And I see that in a lot of the different movements that I'm involved with. And I do think people have the right intentions. And what they want is rights. What they want is equality. And that's what we all want. But you really can't get equality if it's on the backs of other people. You can't get equality if some of those people are being marginalized or left out in order to achieve your goals. And I I see a lot of this also in the ERA movement. Uh, There's a reluctance to talk about trans people. There's a reluctance to talk about the contributions of queer people to the movement. And you know the ERA movement has always been queer. Uh, the people who wrote it, the people who fought for decades to get it ratified. And so I think it's important to not only acknowledge that trans people exist, but that trans people and queer people have been moving these movements forward since they began.
4: I think back to the beginnings of this podcast and the first season of Ordinary Equality, and how well you engaged in the history of the Equal Rights Amendment and Alice Paul's implicit and intentional protection of white women's rights above all else. And the reason why I'm thinking about that in relationship to this conversation is we already have a roadmap for what happens when we try to prioritize the liberation of some while leaving others behind. Flash forward into where we are now and we think about the people who are leading the legislation that gets us what we need to advance constitutional equality, and we think about the fact that one of the leaders who brought us this amendment in the first place was so afraid of creating an inclusive amendment, it just gives me chills because it shows that there's still so much we need to learn at the fundamental core of our values about who we need to be to show up for each other to truly get free. So I always have learned to go back to the history to understand how to move forward. And I think this is just yet another example, another iteration of the same problem that we will continue to see in new packaging until we learn how to address it. The metaphor I always like to use is it's like the same ex-boyfriend who's toxic and treats you badly wearing a different shirt until you learn to set boundaries and be free. It's the same thing. I just it's it's sort of Trivializes it, but I think about it a lot that, oh, we're going to see the same problem over and over, and we're not going to get where we need to go until we really look at the history, look at the things that we haven't yet figured out how to solve, and not try to cut corners, but really try to dig deep, get at the root causes, and make sure that everyone's included in an expansive way. So I think that that's something we need to think about. And when we're not putting that in the center, take the time for that process to regroup every single time. Only then will we be able to move forward.
3: And we need to break up with that boyfriend, realize we're gay, and only date women. (laughs) Because we can't apply the same old solutions. We need a radical new approach. And so... Yeah, I just think about also the people who are bringing the equal rights amendment forward, and uh, you know the abortion rights movement. You know, it's trans people, it's queer people. When I think about Danica Rome, the first out and seated trans legislator in the country, is one of the people that helped get the ERA ratified in Virginia. And these are the people also who are most marginalized. <laughs> so if trans people and women of color are protected and have access to the healthcare they need, everyone has it. (laughs) Because we got it to the most marginalized. And that's the only way that we will know that we have succeeded.
4: Amen. I'm totally with you. It's all about making sure that when all Black trans lives matter, all of our lives will matter. It's the way that we need to continue to champion that. And I think that is something that we understand, but I still find so many people who really need the work to help them connect the dots. And which and it's a reason why doing this work and digging into the history is so important because a lot of times we arrive at these conclusions without actually understanding how we got here and how we came to understand things. And I'm so happy we were able to have access to the information we needed to come to our own conclusions. And I hope that others who hear this information now will start to think about, oh, who's being left out of the conversation for me, who's being left behind, what can I do to make this more expansive because then I will be free because they're free. So we need to leave behind shaming language and start talking more about abortion and politics. All of that is part of taking ourselves away from the defensive reactive position of responding to attacks from the anti-abortion crowd. We need to take a proactive approach and hone in on a disciplined message. We can take control of the narrative by aligning our strategic tactics. That's how we'll convert more people to our side.
3: To learn more about how we can change our approach, we sat down with an expert on communicating ideas.
2: My name is Anat Shankar Osorio, and I'm the principal and founder of ASO Communications. We do research into perception and persuasion around political and social issues, and then we help design campaigns to either persuade people to feel differently about something
3: or to mobilize them to action if they're already in our base of supporters. Analyzing how the religious right approaches their messaging reveals that facts and figures actually don't matter all too much. Because of that, our own efforts have been failing. So
2: they always, always, always message from the moral high ground and provoke their enemy to attack. They do not engage in sort of utilitarian arguments. They don't engage in practical arguments. They don't engage in kind of economic money arguments, as obsessed as they are with money. They seize the moral high ground And the other thing that they do is that they always give to their audience a role in the frame. They give their audience something to do. Now, it's not literally something to do. It is a metaphorical role in the frame. You get to be a savior. You get to be on the side of preserving, protecting, ensuring innocent life. And so you as a listener, you as a sort of potential new recruit, get to do something. And in contrast, in standard left-wing framing on this issue in particular, what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to not. We're supposed to stop. We're supposed to don't. We're supposed to not intervene, not get involved, and allow. Which doesn't give the listener a role in the frame. They're not creating anything. And again, I'm speaking metaphorically. I'm not saying like you should actually give people a hammer and be like, here, construct it. Like we're not talking about literal creation. We're talking about within the context of the story, sort of what are you the listener? How are you the listener positioned?
4: So what matters is how the listener perceives their own role in the issue you're discussing. It takes more than just knowing you're right and throwing out tons of statistics to win hearts and minds. Anat pointed out a few of the common pitfalls that progressives hit when they're trying to get their message
2: across. So the classic mistake in progressive messaging is we like to begin our opening salvo is like, there's a war on women, the climate is screwed, poverty is at its highest rate in however many years, you know, union density is terrible whatever like boy have I got a problem for you and what we find is that it's not that people are like oh no that's not a problem what we find is that you know people got 99 problems and they don't want yours because they're set for problems like they picked up all their problems at the problem store and they don't have any room in their card so instead a message that begins with a shared value and then pivots to the problem second so what that sounds like in language is No matter what we look like or where we come from, most of us believe that people who work for a living ought to earn a living. If I'm about to talk about the minimum wage. Or the same is true today has been throughout history. People move to make life better for themselves. It's hard to move. Takes courage. But you do it to put food on the table or get your kids into a better school. Immigrant Americans move here for the promise of freedom and opportunity in this country. So you start with the people move. It's hard. It's the human will to survive. It's, it's freedom. And then you go into the particular case, which is immigrant Americans do it too, and here's why. So it's basically building a bridge to empathy instead of sympathy.
3: Our message needs to be precise and intentional, just as the rights movement was when they created this debate in the first place progressives and reproductive rights advocates tend to get passionate in the heat of the debate and lose sight of that fact. For example, one common approach is to point out when anti-choice people are being hypocritical. How many times have you heard a progressive on Twitter say something like, you're pro-life, but you're also pro-death penalty, such a contradiction. It's infuriating when the right spouts contradictory views. I get that. So it can be tempting to call it out when you see it. But Anat says that tactic isn't actually effective when you're trying to convert the movable middle.
2: The hypocrisy argument doesn't work because our activists will repeat it. Our activists get excited about it, but our base isn't particularly excited about it because it's a process argument and not an outcome argument. And in general, process arguments are duds. We need to be arguing about what the outcomes that our policies will deliver. So that's one thing. The second thing is that in making the hypocrisy argument, you by definition have to cede the moral high ground. Because instead of talking about what you stand for, what you believe in, what you want to see happen in the world, now you want to say, well, he said this yesterday, and now he said this today, and you know he said this, and then he said that, when in fact, that's taking you off of your message. I mean, that's sort of the fundamental thing, is that we need to say what we're for. And instead of saying what we're for, we get sucked in. We're like cats with a laser pointer. That's, I mean, and we were that anyway, but during Trump, it was like laser pointer plus, you know, speed. It was like, wait, he said this, wait, he said that, wait, he said this, wait, he said, you know, and we're just constantly chasing after them and therefore amplifying what they say in our earnest desire to talk about how completely and totally egregious and horrendous it is. In the end,
4: you can't shame the shameless. So the real goal of our message should be talking about what we're for, not constantly reacting to egregious things people on the right are saying. Again, it's about being proactive and independent, not just defensive and reactive. They aren't
3: trying to wage a war based on facts. We've talked a lot about what not to do when putting your message into the world and talking with anti-abortion people. But what should we do? not mentioned that we should build on common beliefs to create empathy, But what does that look like in practice?
2: Most of us know all too well the pain of seeing a loved one struggle with a pregnancy. Pregnancy they longed for that slipped away. Someone you were counting down the days to meet only to learn they would never survive. A pregnancy you were too broke, too sick, too scared, or simply not ready to continue. A pregnancy that would endanger all you are struggling to provide for the children you already have. Someone you love might need an abortion someday you can help ensure that when that day comes, they can get the care they need. Basically to make people remember and understand that pregnancy is something that happens to lots of people, not all people, (laughs) but lots of people. And pregnancy can feel all sorts of different ways and it can go all sorts of different routes and all sorts of different things can happen in a pregnancy. And that includes, for example, as you already know, the massive silence and therefore stigma around miscarriage, which is incredibly common, the various kinds of developmental delays and disabilities that can be discovered in utero. You know, like all sorts of things happen in life and all sorts of things happen in pregnancy. And I think that until we sort of normalize this bigger story of Pregnancy is a thing that happens in many people's lives. It can take all different forms. It can take all different paths. It can come from all different sources. It can raise all sorts of different emotions. And the person who is pregnant is in the role of deciding what's going to happen. So that's one approach. The other approach is to embrace something that we've been we've used with great success on other issues which is something we call the race class narrative and that approach would sound like this for example no matter what we look like or where we live most of us believe that we should decide for ourselves whether and when to have children so there's that opening shared value but today A handful of politicians pass laws that destroy our freedoms, undermine our rights, and endanger our futures. They pass laws that force us to struggle to simply make ends meet or to care for our families, and then shame and blame us for the hardships they create. And while we're busy fighting for our most basic rights, they hand the money they take from our health care, our schools, and our kids' futures to their corporate donors. Someone you love might need an abortion someday. A handful of politicians are trying to make us shame and blame women people struggling to make ends meet, new immigrants, Black people, whoever it is they can point their finger at to distract from their attempts to destroy our freedoms and from their failures to make sure we can get and stay well. They turn abortion into an issue because they hope that we'll look the other way while they dismantle the childcare every single one of us needs, they destroy the public schools that our children rely upon and they refuse us the basic knowledge and protections that would help us not get pregnant in the first place. We see through their lies, we see through their distractions, and we choose to treat every single person, no matter what they look like, where they come from, or what kind of plumbing they have, as an equal with the full right and ability to decide for themselves whether and when they become parents.
3: Not everyone is going to be persuadable. But we will have to confront people that disagree with us and attempt to convince them if we want to push our political argument forward.
2: So one of the first things that you have to do is you have to correctly identify the people you cannot have. And you have to not use them as a litmus test of whether or not your messaging is, quote unquote, working. They're your opposition for a reason. They should dislike what you are saying. Because, again, the only way that they like what you're saying and probably there is no way on abortion is for you to basically not say what you actually think, in which case you don't actually win. You're not winning your thing. Right. You're either doing like puppies are cute and people are like, yes, I agree. Puppies are cute. But you're not advancing a political argument like you're not doing anything. You're just spinning your wheels or you are inadvertently reinforcing the other side per the safe, legal, rare example.
4: If you're talking to someone you've identified as persuadable, someone who isn't self-interested, it's important to remember that they actually believe what they're saying, however wrong it may be, and not modeled what finding common ground could actually look like.
2: So with folks that are not the committed opposition, they are religious, they are not hypocrites, they have truly felt beliefs, they're not, you know, like a mastermind of manipulation and pretending that this is their issue so that they can actually like destroy cities and like destroy schools and destroy people's lives they they genuinely think this i think again it's a question of non-judgmental listening and of saying if you're having a one-on-one like in your heart of hearts what do you hope would happen in the world when someone was struggling when someone had had sex for whatever reason they had sex because they were forced or coerced because they absolutely were excited to and wanted to because they had been given misinformation about you know they they bought the story that you can't get pregnant your first time or you can't get pregnant when you're breastfeeding and they believed a thing that wasn't true if it were up to you what would you have happen? And I'm guessing they would say, uh, "What I would want to have happen is I would want that person to carry the child to term and then I would want them to give it up for adoption. That's my guess as to what they would say, you know, if they don't want it. And what I would say to that is, I hear you. You know, I would just love us to be in a place where every single child in this country had the care, the love, the food, the shelter, the toys, the imagination, the jokes, the backyard, you know, the like beautiful park, the the silly childhood song, the ice cream cone on their birthday that I want for my own kids. That's the kind of America that I can really get behind and really work toward. And I think that you feel the same. I mean, that's what I've heard from you. That's what I've experienced. And, you know, I think that that's what God wants. I think what God wants for us all is to be able to live a happy whole life. And I think that the way that we get there is ensuring that we equip everyone with the tools to make their very best choices about whether and when to become a parent and to understand how to do that. I think it's coming from that place of, like, starting off with how would we like children to be treated in our country? How would we like childhood to be experienced?
4: I will definitely break my bad habit of trying to prove really ridiculous arguments wrong just by stating facts because it's true. They don't have all facts. <laughs>
3: and i think it's it's hard because like we both come from communities where we know people who sincerely hold these beliefs and they're not part of some political establishment they're not doing this for financial gain like they really believe these things and for those people it is hard to have these conversations. So I I sympathize uh, with folks who are having a hard time. And it is really frustrating because what we're arguing about is our fundamental worth (laughs) and humanity and rights. And for them, it's more of a philosophical discussion. And so when you put something, you know, like I believe this and it's like, I don't care what you believe. I need to go to the doctor. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like um, it's hard to to have these discussions as though they're philosophical when it really negatively impacts you in a real way. And I get that. But if you are trying to persuade people, if you are, you know, as someone who has changed my mind about a lot of things, The thing that changed my mind was never people yelling at me, never people, you know, throwing, trying to throw scripture back at me in my face. It was people who were like, well, have you thought about this? (laughs) Have you thought about Mm. this? This is what I think. These are people I care about. And really seeing it from the perspective of new people in my life and having people who were much, much more progressive than me have patience. And one thing I learned, <laughs> my parents used to be very anti-gay and you know, I, I was raised Mormon, if you've listened to the whole podcast you know, <laughs> I've been on quite a journey. And at the beginning my parents were very very anti-gay and would say homo antagonistic things all the time. My brother was married and they called his partner his roommate uh pretty frequently and it was just it was tough. It was really tough. And I would just rail against them, and I would rail against them, and I'd be like, you're doing this, and you're hurting people, and na 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 And actually, Pamela Bridgewater, my professor, who we talked about in a previous episode, said, you know, maybe you just want to, like, lay off a little. <laughs> Your parents are good people. Why don't you just take the approach of pretending like they're going to come with you to the other side? And when I switched to that approach... And when I would just be like, hey, want to come to a pride parade with me? And if they would be like, no, then I'd be like, okay, maybe next time. You know, I would just, I just kind of insisted that we were going to come out on the other side together. And eventually they did. Eventually they came out on the other side. They came to my brother's wedding. They have embraced my partner. They are, consider themselves to be allies. And so I think in some, some, Instances, especially in interpersonal relationships, sometimes we just have to give people grace and expect that they'll come out on the other side. And that doesn't mean we change our views. That does not mean that we capitulate to them. That does not mean we ever let them denigrate us or treat us as less than. But it does mean that we have open conversations in a respectful way.
4: And I've definitely, you're right, I've seen people come along and sometimes it's not, it's not immediate. I remember meeting someone many years ago online and he told me many years later that I changed his position on reproductive justice and rights and led to him voting for his first Democratic candidate and i never would have known that during the times where we had some really deeply intense debates about politics but the fact that i was in it and continuously recognizing this person's humanity and stayed with them on the water mm-hmm. right instead mm-hmm. sort of throwing them mm-hmm. in the water later contributed to that movement um and i i just felt it was a gift that they finally told me that but they said yeah you really changed you changed my thinking and i and it took years but and help me to think of the people who've changed the way that I think on a number of issues, and I'm I'm better for it. And people who've made me better.
3: Uh, so so you're a missionary. I 100 agree with you. <laughs> oh my gosh, yes. But I think like you can't have a person more dedicated to a cause than a missionary. And with a missionary, there was like a never-say-die attitude. You know what I mean? As a Mormon missionary, we were taught that the way to approach people is called build on common beliefs. And the way that you build on common beliefs is you find something that you have in common, no matter how many other things you don't have in common. So you'll start with someone and you'll be like, so you believe in God? And they're like, no, I'm an atheist. And you're like, oh, but you have a family. And like, of course, everyone has a family. So they're like, yes, I have a family. And you're like, oh, well, we have families too. And we think they're the most important thing and we can live with them forever in heaven. Like you can, you can build on common beliefs with anyone if you're willing to go to the, the, the common denominator that you have. And so I think in some ways, we need to take that missionary zeal <laughs> to progressive causes too.
4: And I think it comes down to values. I think about that a lot when people ask, why are you so passionate about this issue? And I fundamentally believe in human rights and human dignity. And there can be no dignity when another human being who's just the same sort of mortal blood and bone <laughs> that I am has control over my body. It's not right. It's my birthright to have governance over myself and my body and life and in death and I feel the same way about assisted death. I feel the same way about issues of humanity and compassion. So I'm glad we're having this conversation because I I think about that a lot, that I fundamentally think it comes down to those common values, right? That we all want to be free. We want to be free to be able to make the choices that um, align with our conscience and align with our values and that should be something that everybody should be able to make without interference um, from governance or from governments or from other people's judgments nobody's walking in our shoes so they shouldn't be able to dictate what we should do amen at the end of the day we all need to be genuinely receptive to people's honest experiences people who have multiple abortions or self-managed abortions trans folks who want to get pregnant and start families, or who feel uncomfortable in a bright pink clinic.
3: We've talked a lot today about how our movement can be stronger and more inclusive, how we need to shut down trans antagonism and the culture of shame on our own side, how important it is to stay disciplined in our external messaging, focused on what we're for, and finding common, empathetic ground.
4: As a final thought, let's return to Renee Bracey Sherman. a lot of people
0: think they don't know someone who's had an abortion, which is why I coined the phrase, everyone loves someone who's had an abortion to make people remember that, right? And I would challenge the assumption that people aren't talking about it. It's actually that people are uncomfortable talking about it. And we have data that shows that people who have abortions share their story with between one and two people. The question is, are you actually listening? And I think that we need to change the conversation to move it off of putting it on, the onus on someone who's had the abortion to step out and share their stories without creating a safe, loving environment for them to do so. And so if you haven't heard an abortion story, ask yourself what it is about how you talk about abortion or how open you are that might be closed
3: off to someone who potentially could share their story with you. We invite all our listeners to take that essential first step, to really listen. What we all want is freedom and healthy lives for ourselves and our families. If we can imagine the community we really want, we can stay focused on building a more equal future together.
4: Thanks for listening to season two of Ordinary Equality and joining us both on this journey Keep your eyes on the podcast feed for bonus content over the next few months.
3: Follow us on Twitter at Ord Equality, O-R-D Equality, for more updates and information about the ERA and abortion advocacy. The fight is far from over. Talk to y'all soon. Ordinary Equality is a Wonder Media Network production produced by Edie Ollard, Grace Lynch, and Liz Smith. Our executive producer is Jenny Kaplan. Our original theme music is by Rachel Wardell. Special thanks to Janis Formicella and Taylor Williamson.